I'm Dan Jurgen, Vice Chairman of IHS Market and Chairman of SEERWEEK. Welcome to the SEERWEEK conversation presented by IHS Market. And today the subject is energy transition. You can't go anywhere in the energy world and indeed in the policy world these days without running into those two words, energy transition. But uh, energy transition has a lot of different meaning and there's a lot of confusion about it. So what we want to do today in this conversation is sort it out and provide some perspectives of where we are and where we're going. And to do that, I'm joined by uh, three of my colleagues, uh, all of whom are working on aspects of this. Jim Burkhart uh, heads our oil market and oil scenario uh, research, and as well as our mobility research. Susan Farrell leads our work on climate policy and the global scenarios, and Atul Arya is our chief global energy strategist. So welcome to all of my colleagues. And uh, let me just set the scene for a moment. Uh, energy transitions have been going on for a long time. In my new book, The New Map, I argue that it's been going on for approximately 312 years since an English metal worker figured out in January of 1709 that you could get better iron made with coal rather than using wood. But energy uh, transitions up till now have uh, taken centuries, taken long times to unfold. Uh, and uh, there are also, as uh, Atul Arya has pointed out, energy transitions up till now have also been energy additions. Uh, oil overtook coal as the world's number one energy source in the 1960s. And yet today, the world uses a lot more coal than it did in the 1960s. So what's different today is uh, trying to steer towards an energy transition, a pretty complete energy transition, and doing it in 28 and a half years. That's a pretty big agenda, and that's our agenda for discussion today. And I'll start by asking Jim, why is energy transition on the table? Dan, uh, you know, one of the more remarkable developments in 2020 that's continued into this year is the increase in aspirations on the part of governments to decarbonize. You know, last year, uh, China, Japan, Korea, Brazil, the U.S. elected Joe Biden, the European Union was already there. They've increased their aspirations to decarbonize. But if you go back to, you know, April of 2020, the depth of the lockdowns globally, the worst most severe global economic disruption since World War II. I don't think it was inevitable at that time that there'd be this move to increase aspirations, to strengthen policy, to decarbonize. Uh, oftentimes when there's an economic crisis, issues that aren't immediately related to it can get set aside, but that didn't happen. We saw aspirations increase, policy strengthen, and why is that? And this is not just an academic question. The answer to this uh, will shed light on how deeply rooted this recent momentum is. And you know, part of the reason, part of the answer could be that you know, COVID-19 reordered values and priorities uh, for people, for governments. It could have also fed the sense that something that is off track with nature, that COVID nature related and somehow they were connected and, and off track. And I'm not saying that's the definitive answer. You know, with the passage of time, we'll, we'll certainly know more. 
But if that is the case, if there was this reordering of priorities, the sense that nature is off, off track, that could point to you know, deep roots for this increase in momentum, certainly increase in aspirations that we've seen. Now, to be clear, there's going to be ebbs and flows right. in terms of enthusiasm about investment in markets, but it does appear to be more deep, deeply rooted. You use the word momentum, and uh, as you suggest, the momentum's increased. And let me turn now to Susan to uh, kind of lay out the momentum. Right. So if we move from Jim's point about governments increasing their targets, the, the net zero target that started with China in, in September 2020, as you mentioned, China's the number one emitter in the world. So that was a pretty big deal, followed by the number two emitter with the Biden administration also having a net zero by 2050 target. But in addition to that, there are several other actors on the stage who have really been forceful in the last uh, 18 months. Uh, the first is the financial sector. They have continually, throughout 2020, increased the number of signatories to the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And that requires companies to evaluate different futures and talk about their business value and business proposition, including in a world which reaches the Paris Agreement target of 1.5 degree limiting temperature rise. And that world is very, very stringent on what happens to energy. And they're being asked to talk about their business strategies in that world, whether or not they think that's likely to happen. So there's a, there's a lot of pressure on companies to talk about the future in different ways than before. Well, Susan, we'll come back and talk about how companies are responding and the pressures and the choices they have to make. But let me uh, ask uh, Atul to pick up on that. And just a few months ago, we had Sarah Week uh, in, in March of uh, 2021, a lot's happened since then. Uh, what's changed, Otto? Yeah, uh, thank you, Dan. As, as Jim of Sudan, I've already outlined, you know, the momentum started last year, but uh, since Sarah Week, and, uh, you know, we came up with this um, storyline, like you did, which was nine days that shook the world, which was built on the, uh, the book, 10 days that shook the world, which was about the Bolshevik revolution. And the nine days we refer to were the nine days in, in May when when we had the IEA publish its roadmap to net zero, we had the court uh, ruling in, in, in The Hague around uh, Shell and the Shell's goal, uh, investor pressure, as Susan outlined, for Chevron specifically here, and of course, uh, you know, a change in the ExxonMobil board, and also US Securities and Exchange Commission outlining a very ambitious agenda on financial disclosures related to climate change. So a lot has happened uh, uh, in the in the inter, you know in the in the time since March. I, I think as we speak today, uh, there is a meeting of the IPCC committee to finalize their report, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which I think is going to be a foundational report uh, leading up to the COP meeting. So a lot has happened. A lot is going to happen. But I will close by saying that uh, you know in in all this aspiration. Uh, one thing we are learning is that changing the energy system, as you already said, takes decades, sometimes more than decades. And just in the last 12 months, demand for all of the uh, energy sources, oil, gas, coal, has increased significantly, in some cases above the 2019 level, and emissions have also gone up significantly. So this is a long journey, and it's not going to be that straightforward to just have a scenario and say, 
we can get to net zero by 2050 or 2060. So uh, you've just mentioned something that looms very large on the horizon, which is the UN COP26 uh, meeting in Glasgow. Uh, let me ask all of any of you, is, is so much what's happening now as to prepare and a run-up in a coordinated and uncoordinated way to prepare for that uh, November meeting? Right, it's a very complicated road to there, but there are there are a number of, of pivotal points. I would say, very interestingly, uh, three months almost to the day after President Biden uh, was inaugurated, he led a, the Leaders Climate on, on Summit, April 21st of this year. And that was a remarkable event, and it was meant to set the stage for tightening uh, country targets leading up to the COP. And, and indeed it has, and that, that was pretty important. There are other things happening throughout the year, many, many other things. Uh, one of them is also very interesting that the European Union just came out with, the European Commission just came out with their so-called Fit for 55, which was a, a very aggressive set of rules, proposed rules and regulations on how to meet their much stricter targets uh, meant to bring net zero Europe uh, by 2050. And how that progresses over the next two years, because it's actually nothing moves quickly. Uh, we now have 27 countries who have to discuss what they really want to do. So it is not a done deal at all, but, it, but it's, a, it's a real uh, stake, if you like, or line in the sand leading up to the COP26. Well, one thing that we've seen, of course, involves the uh, automobile industry. One might have thought that the electric car was uh, had sort of passed away from the scene along with Thomas Edison. It was only in 2008 that the Tesla Roadster appeared. And now, Jim, maybe you would talk about um, what you see in the automobile industry, keeping in mind that cars are responsible for 6 or 7% of uh, CO2 emissions, but uh, how rapid uh, the commitments for change are. Well, the, the changes we're seeing in the automotive system are, you know, the greatest, you know, in, in more than a hundred years. And one thing that's clear is uh, electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles have won the capital allocation battle, have won the regulatory battle, uh, particularly uh, in Europe. And when you look at some figures, it, it is impressive when you see, uh, plug-in cars capturing 15, 20% of new sales in some countries like Germany. But in the big picture, uh, plug-in electric vehicles are still just about you know, 1% of the global fleet. BEVs today are about 10 million vehicles, while there's still about 1.3 billion oil-powered vehicles on the road. So this transition, as Atul said, is going to unfold over decades and not a year or two. So do you want to speculate what that means for oil demand? Well, oil demand uh, has been on a spectacular recovery since that massive decline in April, and we're probably we're on track to exceed the pre-COVID levels probably sometime uh, next year. You know, oil demand this year is up about 7 million barrels per day over just a few months. So it's back on track and it's going to take time uh, for oil to you know, hit that plateau and then perhaps in decades to come plateau and then perhaps decline. So uh, electric cars are one sort of constellation of technologies that uh, are really being uh, propelled here. But uh, Atul, talk about scale and technologies and uh, what are the, you know, what do you see? I mean, you used to run a solar, uh, a solar panel business. 
what do you see in terms of uh, the new technologies? After all, even the IEA has said half the technologies that are needed don't exist today. Yeah, so I think the way I would characterize the technology landscape is in three buckets. So in one, you have solar PV, you mentioned also uh, onshore wind, and also now I think you know, increasingly offshore wind, which are really ready for scale deployment. There, you know, you can see them scaling in, in a very big way uh, globally uh, around the world, wherever it makes sense to do that. Then there is a second set of technologies which are ready for deployment. They still have cost challenges in terms of being, you know, need to have the cost come down, which will include things like carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen, particularly green hydrogen, where we know there is a pathway to get to a low cost, but it requires more deployment because that's how the learning will happen. And there is a third bucket of technologies which are not quite there yet. And I would put storage in there, although batteries for cars are advancing very rapidly, but large scale storage, you know, which is kind of one of those things we need uh, is quite far away and, and it will require some very significant technological breakthrough. But one other thing, you know, Dan, maybe you can talk about this, the whole issue of supply chains, you know, to do all the things we want to do, it's going to be, this is a very big infrastructure business the world of energy is getting into. Because, you know, oil and gas had the advantage of being high energy density molecules. Now we're going to go into molecules or electrons, which are not high energy density. We need a lot of moving of earth and moving of, you know, digging it up. So what do you think will happen there? Well, I, I'll come to that, but we can't let you go so quickly over hydrogen. After all, uh, Susan talked about the EU documents. They talk about Europe being 25% of its energy from hydrogen by 2050. Say a little more about prospects for hydrogen and how you see it. Yeah, so so uh, hydrogen, we, we know how to make hydrogen, but that knowledge is mainly from hydrogen from natural gas, you know, so that's something is done in refineries and in petrochemical plants. To make hydrogen from renewables and make it completely clean, there are two issues there. Even if you make it from renewable power through electrolysis, it's not going to be 100 percent, you know, zero carbon. There will be emissions because to make all the you know, equipment will require energy. So, so the costs for those are still very high, but there is a real, you know, I would call it like the new Manhattan Project on hydrogen underway, particularly led by Europe, uh, because unless you can bring cheap hydrogen, you can't decarbonize many of the industrial sector where Europe is still a pretty important uh, player, and also many of the residential sector uh, applications. So it's, it's going to be important. I think I see the next decade, just the way solar came, you know, from $7 a watt when I was running solar to, you know, less than, you know, 10 cents a watt, we need to come to the same kind of cost decline in, in green hydrogen in this decade. So we will know a lot, probably in the next five to six years, but definitely by 2030. But we can really make hydrogen big. Well, let me just take your question and say that uh, people know the term big oil has been used for decades, decades, and decades. But I think we're going to be talking about big shovels because, you know, the wind and the sun are free. But you need a lot of materials. One yeah. estimate is for a thousand pound uh, battery for an electric car, you have to move 500,000 pounds of earth. And uh, there's going to be uh, whole new supply chains that have to be created. And if everybody's rushing in the same direction at the same time, well, we've seen that happen before. You're going to get pressure on supply chains. We're living now in a period of real pressure on supply chains. It could get much more intense. And it's going to get more geopolitical because of a lot of the supply chains. China has a very key role 
And every day, it seems, the tensions between the United States and China uh, are getting higher. And so we're going to kind of see maybe a collision between these new supply chains and a new form of geopolitics. So that's something that's not getting that much attention. But uh, you cannot remake a what today is a, over a $90 trillion world economy in 28 and a half years uh, without a lot of stuff, a lot of material. And where that material is going to come from will be very important. Uh, let me turn, go back to Susan talked about what Europe's doing, and it's kind of the pacemaker for the rest of the world. And Susan, you'd also point out that the emissions from Europe are what, 7% of total emissions, something like that? And what about the rest of the world? 7%, that, that's right. We, we tend to focus a lot on Europe, and it's because they've really taken a leadership role, and they want a leadership role in creating real change around the world. But the fact is that at the end of the day, they are the fourth larger emitter when you take all EU 27 countries together. And they are behind China, the US, uh, and India. And they are already headed down. So they are going down. And their, their absolute emissions are, are not going to move the dial. They are not going to move the dial in, in getting to a, a lower carbon world. It's got to be those big countries. And then you get to Indonesia, Brazil, Russia. All of those countries, not include the United States there, have to start coming down uh, indeed and pretty pretty quickly. And there's a, a real difference of views about how fast that can actually happen. How fast can you move this ship? It's a huge energy ecosystem. And uh, as Jim has pointed out many times on calls, and you today, today 80% of primary energy comes from oil, gas, and coal. So not will that move, it will move, but how fast can it move? And there's a great deal of discussion and debate at, at company level and executive levels about how to adjust a company to take advantage of that in a profitable way. We'll come back to the company. Obviously, that's a very central question, but uh, Atul, uh, let's take the emerging markets, ones you know well. Uh, you're the lead organizer for our India Energy Forum, which will be next October. Delhi, uh, virus allowing. Uh, how do you see India responding to the, the agenda that uh, Susan just laid out? Yeah, I think Susan is absolutely right. You know, it, the focus should really be on emerging countries, non-OECD, where the emissions are continue to rise. India is a good example. And as you have written in your book, in the new map, that there will be multiple energy transitions in India. That's what the Indian oil minister at that time, Minister Pradhan, as I said, so I think we will see that. And in India, of course, it is a per capita uh, energy consumption is very low and emissions are very low and it's a growing economy. It's going to need a lot more energy. And the scenarios work Susan team has just recently published our annual update shows that even in our sort of in our base scenario uh, inflections, we will get down. India will reduce its fossil uh, oil, gas and coal. Uh, consumption from 76% to about 68% by 2050 is still a lot of you know uh, non-renewable energy, let's say, is which is going to be used, and, and it's, you just can't force uh, a country like India to you know flip the switch. And I'll give you one quick example of coal, which is deeply embedded in Indian economy. But we think well, we can switch coal from to renewables. Fine, possible gas, maybe not that easy because there is not much gas and it's expensive. And the affordability is going to be hugely important. 
and also the, the issue of employment. Coal industry in India employs millions of people. In Indian railways, number one customer is, is the coal companies because they transport the coal. So you can't just flip the switch and say, well, you know, we'll move to renewables. You have to think about the employment for millions of people in a country. Well, I think, I think that's, um, you know, you take Europe. Europe is the developed world, particularly yeah. Western, Western Europe, but Europe in general. But for emerging markets, they have different imperatives because they have very low per capita incomes. Uh, they need economic growth. Uh, they need to reduce poverty. Uh, they need to reduce people uh, cooking with wood uh, in, in, in villages and so forth. And so they have different imperatives than, uh, than, uh, than a developed country. And sometimes it seems that gets lost in the discussion. I think that's what you were getting at, Susan. Yeah. Oh, one uh, point about Europe and India, and completely agree, you know, the future of energy demand growth is going to be shaped by India some other Asian countries in Africa. But getting back to Europe, they do have, Europe does have a very large automotive imprint, both in terms of manufacturing and sales. And that can reverberate, could reverberate around the world. The July 14th proposal by the European, European Commission to essentially ban the sale of oil powered cars by 2035. Yes, that's just for Europe if it gets full approval. But given the footprint of the European auto industry, that could impact other markets uh, as well. Well, and I mean, it, it impacts come in different forms. I saw the other day that the United Auto Workers say 30% of jobs in the US auto industry would be eliminated by, uh, by a shift to electric cars. And that doesn't include all the gas stations and the repair shops. And so I yeah. think Jim used to talk about, there, there's more than one set of reverberations that will uh, happen as a result of this. I'm gonna come back and ask you to develop that, but I want to go to Susan to talk a little more about companies and kind of how you're working with companies to think through their strategies in, uh, uh, in with the imperatives of energy transition. Absolutely. And uh, I love talking about company strategies because it, it, it's, it's such an area of uh, debate at, at the moment. Some companies are in looking at an energy transition, although they have very different views on not how fast it might happen. And others are looking at a transformation. So some companies are transforming themselves. And many companies, are, Jim mentioned the auto companies. The auto companies may be moving faster than the market is. They look forward, they're looking forward a long time because they have a long production and, and um, long production period and new model time. And therefore, they're changing quickly. They're saying, we're going to move to electric as of X date. Uh, energy companies are doing the same thing. And they're bouncing off a scale portfolio with a growth portfolio. And the really big integrated companies can do both. So they can be present in the scale of oil and gas. And they can participate in the growth markets in electricity and in the renewable sector at the same time. Other companies, uh, smaller companies in the oil and gas sector, don't really have that luxury to participate in both. So they're trying to decide how to work through an energy transition as opposed to transforming their company. And then a third group I would call, the, and one can't homogenize the national oil companies, but the national oil companies are also struggling differently with looking at the future. Some can participate in both. The Middle Eastern countries 
kind of have the scale, and they also have an awful lot of solar that they can use to uh, produce renewables, green hydrogen, and they're talking about that. But then there are others who simply have oil and gas as their patrimony, and they need to produce it because that that was that is what their their role is, and so they are not a, a large group that can be. Uh, Call the same either the national oil companies because they have different needs going forward the next 10, 20 years. Well, and of course, if some of the companies uh, see, I mean, the world will still be using oil and gas. After all, uh, electric cars are 20% plastic. Mm -hmm. And so some of those countries see themselves as actually gaining market share as a result as uh, oil production goes down, presumably in other parts of the world. Yeah, I think Dan, you're, you're right. I mean, maybe I can just add to what Susan is saying about companies. You know, we, we, if you go back even, and you have written about this in your, in your books, is that you go back 30, 40 years or even further back, you know, the big seven, the, the seven sisters and, and the big oil and gas companies, it was a very narrow band within which they operated, right? Their strategies were very similar, upstream business, downstream business, and chemicals business. But now the, 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 the differentiation is huge. Probably the biggest differentiation we have seen, at least I have seen in my lifetime, in the strategies and, and also European versus US differentiation has really expanded. So as Susan is saying, I think we're going to see multiple strategies. You know, some want to become from an IOC international oil company to a IEC an integrated energy company, easier said than done. So I think this is going to be, uh, it'll be very interesting to see how this uh, landscape uh, evolves. And then of course, you know, one of the ways we look at is that what is the service companies doing? How, because they are in a way leading indicator of what happens and what service companies are doing right now, focusing on carbon capture, hydrogen, geothermal, lithium mining. So you will see kind of a, you know, kind of preview of coming attractions in a way as to what happens with these, this, this whole oil and gas, big oil and gas sector in particular. So Susan, let me ask you, what, what, are there certain common questions, big questions you're getting from companies? Is there a generic question? Uh, the, many of the questions are around the pace of technology development. Uh, there, there's a pretty broad belief that oil markets are going to slow. There's a lot of debate about what, what's going to happen to natural gas markets. Uh, electricity is, is the fastest growing final energy, final energy demand. And that, that's commonly known. What's not known is, is around the edges, I would say, as Atul was saying, about what all these technologies are going to be doing and how fast they can move and the costs associated with it. Uh, and they are seriously struggling with the, the pressure from the financial investors to demonstrate, demonstrate, demonstrate that they're going to do something different in a time period that appears to be very different than the world might actually look. So they're, on one side, they're planning to make investments that make sense in a world they believe is going to happen. And the other, they also have to explain what would happen if a very, very different world were to happen, such as the net zeros. Right. Well, let me, in the few minutes we have left, ask you turn to the subject of government policies, because of course, governments are really driving this transition uh, uh, in so many different ways. Uh, Susan? Global carbon markets? Global carbon markets. Governments are driving it. And one of the most obvious 
raised transparent rates for our carbon markets. Uh, the European uh, emissions trading system is the largest carbon market in the world. We have a couple different ones in the US. China just launched a carbon market. But when we look at carbon costs, we look at explicit costs, which are very easy. Everyone would like to go and say, okay, here's the EU ETS and the price is X and that's it. But it's much, much more complex than that. It's a mosaic of tools. And the tools include taxes in addition, carbon taxes and other taxes. They include mandates. The US may well go to more mandates. You must do this by then. You must increase the vehicle miles traveled per kilometer. Uh, you have to reduce your emissions. All of these are costs, costs to the economy and, and costs to companies. And then on top of that, in, investors are saying, we want a net zero target. Well, the only way we, they can get there often is by purchasing an offset or a credit on a voluntary carbon market. And that is another cost to the company that has to be included in the, in the total picture. Right. So a tool in terms of technology, role of governments. Yeah, I would uh, say a couple of things to for the future. One is the issue of coal. You know, we touched briefly. Coal is 10% of global emissions. You know, biggest single source of emissions. What happens with coal is going to determine path to net zero. Now, you could have carbon capture, you could substitute coal with gas or, or with renewables, but it's not that straightforward as I mentioned about India. So I think we need to we need to think about what happens in that. Yes. The other is the issue of money for technology. You know, we have all talked about that. And I think it'd be interesting to see, I, I, you know, for COP, I would say follow the money. You know, there was a commitment in Paris that $100 billion of money will go from developed world to the developing world. That hasn't happened. And in the kind of post-COVID world we are coming into, will that really happen? Because unless we all said, you know, unless developing world decarbonizes, path to net zero doesn't exist. So those are the things I would be focusing on. So, so are, is there an expectation that COP will come up with some kind of guarantee of financial transfers from developed developing countries? There will be, I, there's a, that's a part of the big, big debate. And along with the big debate on how do you scale the global, create a global carbon market, your question, can you really create one? And how would that, uh, that look like? Because there's a lot of money which will flow from you know, one part of the world to another. So Jim, uh, before you talked about that what happens with the regulations on automakers in Europe has global impact. And you've described this to some degree under the concept of what you've called regulatory geography. As a kind of final point, can you uh, elaborate on what that is and what people should look for? It's essentially this, that the priorities, the interests in Germany or the UK or France are not the same as India, Nigeria, and Vietnam. And we're a long ways away from having some type of globally aligned system uh, to constrain carbon growth. In other words, it's going to be a very bumpy road and the regulations, what prospers, what doesn't, is going to vary by geography because the interests in these jurisdictions are, are not the same. But I guess um, that phrase you say, a bumpy road, uh, there's going to be a lot of bumps trying to uh, have a complete energy transition in 28 and a half years. It's, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of confusion. And I want to thank you, Jim, and you, Susan, and you, Atul, for bringing clarity and highlighting key issues, key questions to the energy transition. 
thank you very much. And I want to thank everybody who's joined us for this CRE conversation brought to you by IHS Martin.